Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. I'm really looking forward to this episode today. It's a privilege to speak to my guest, somebody I've been following the last couple of years and has a new book out, which I hope you will consider buying. And actually, if you find something interesting in this podcast, but we found have today. If you share a link to this podcast on a social media platform and you tag me so that I know it, Zondervan, who's the publisher of this book, is giving me an opportunity to give away four copies. So I, I'm excited about the opportunity to, to share this book with other people. And so, and I'll introduce a guest in a second, but it's Aaron Wren, Life in the Negative World. I would love for you to get your hands on this book. So four of you have an opportunity to make that happen today when you share a link to this. I want to thank our sponsors who make this podcast happen, Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. We've had a 400% increase over the last five years, probably in part as a result of the emergence of the Global Methodist Church. We're privileged to serve pastors all over the world from that new denomination, but in addition to a host of other traditions within the kind of broad Wesleyan tradition, though, of course, we have people come from all kinds of traditions that wouldn't might not be considered Wesleyan. We have bachelor's, master's, doctoral programs, lay initiatives. We'd love for you to check us out at wbs.edu. I'm also thankful to WPO Development. They're a group that comes along alongside churches and nonprofits, educational institutions, and helps them develop strategic plans. And then eventually, if they're led to this place, to have capital campaigns and learning how to actualize the strategies that they've put in place. And so they've done that for over 250 organizations across the country. I've worked with them. I highly recommend them to you. You can find out more information about WPO development in my show notes. And finally, if you haven't followed the things happening at andymillerthe3rd.com and the More to the Story podcast, I would love for you to get on my email list. And if you come on my email list, I'll send you a free tool. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching session, but also a tool, an eight-page PDF that I'll send to you that you can use if you're a Sunday school teacher or a preacher who's looking to go deeper in your study of Scripture. And actually, this, the book that we're about to read, we're, we're going to talk about, encourages this type of thing in, in a chapter on ownership because it's so important. Who knows in our time when we're going to be in the place where um, YouTube or any podcast platform or certainly any social media might just, I might be gone. But people who are on my email list and on the email list of the people, the person I'm interviewing today, you have an opportunity, we have an opportunity to have direct interaction with you. And so the best way that if you, identify with the things or kind of appreciate what's coming from my podcast is to sign up for my email list. I'd love for you to do that at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. Okay. I am so glad to welcome to the podcast, Aaron Wren, who is the author of this new book published by Zondervan, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. He's a senior fellow of the American Reformer. He has a great, he has a great series of, uh, he writes regularly. You can find out more about him at AaronWren.com. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I, I couldn't help but see all the influence throughout your um, your book and through your writings through the years um, that you're a Hoosier, too. So yes, we have yes. that in common. <laughs> yes. I was born in Rushville. Do you know where Rushville is? Uh, Maybe not. <laughs> you know, I've heard of it, but I can't quite place it on the map. Well, it's just uh, less than 5,000 people. It was the smallest town where the Salvation Army was serving at that time in the whole country. But my parents were sent there. I was there. Um, it also is a significant place for um, uh, 
slaughtering pigs. <laughs> and, okay. then, and then I was in Bloomington five years, two years in Indianapolis. So I've seen the Indiana stream coming through your riding. Yeah, now, well, you I also, up, go ahead. I grew up four miles outside of a town called Laconia, which has less than 100 people. Oh, man. Uh, and it uh, varies depending on census. But I spent most of my adult life in Chicago and New York. Okay. Well, we have. I didn't make my way to New York, but I graduated high school, a homeschool high school, actually, in the Chicago area. Uh, so I claim Chicago, too. And so people ask where I'm from. Sometimes they can pick it up in my voice. Now, now tell me just a, a, a little sketch of your journey. I know that you are a consultant. And then you work for the Manhattan Institute, and now you're more of a, a writer, public intellectual, working with the um, with the American Reformer. Tell me a little bit about your story. Sure. Well, as I said, I grew up in rural southern Indiana, and then after college, moved to Chicago, had career number one in management consulting, uh, mostly with a firm called Accenture. I was there for you know 15 uh, you know years. I probably spent 18 years basically in that world. Uh, really sort of in a technology orientation. Then I made a shift and uh, shifted into public policy and writing about cities, particularly the overlooked cities of the American Midwest, and ended up uh, at the Manhattan Institute uh, in New York, which is a think tank there. I had to go to New York uh, to write about the Midwest. There was something interesting <laughs> there. Um, but in, in some respects, it was kind of applying the tools, techniques, and disciplines of management consulting to the problem of the city. And then um, I sort of uh, pivoted into career number three, which is um, basically doing some of the same stuff, but with a focus on the future of the evangelical church. And then also men's issues. What really got me interested in this initially was this idea that men were not, were not going to church, but they were turning to online influencers. And mm -hmm. why is that? And how do we get in the game? But it turned out that my writing on the future of the church uh, turned out to be even more popular. <laughs> So uh, hence the book you're holding, although I still do a yeah. little bit of, of urban work at time uh, there. Interesting. And, and the the former blog or uh, newsletter you have is called The Masculinist, right? Now, I, I was yeah. with you a little bit in that time period before you kind of transitioned to this. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I was originally sort of talking about men's issues, and then it sort of grew out of that. So I sort of just rebranded it after myself because uh, yeah. it's uh, I don't want to limit it to just any one topic, you know. Right. Well, I've I've so appreciated. I've I've saw the article in the first things, which I think there was a this idea had been developing for almost a decade with developing these three worlds, this framework for the three worlds. And in just a second, I want you to explain it. But I'm going to try and come at it a little different way than I've even heard you talk about it before. And I want to explain a little bit of my story because. I think you're when I read this book and I've read your article, but it's even more so with the book. I love how you just be able to take more time and also think about what people are to do more with the information that you've given. I've lived in these three worlds. I feel like you're describing my life. It has been a wild time to see like just these various influences. I don't feel like people often our, our scholars or public intellectuals have been able to describe my experience very much. I look at some of the books that have come out that try to describe American evangelicalism, like Jesus and John Wayne. Um, and I feel like it just misses, it misses the positive things that I experienced from that culture. Okay. So here's my, I, I, my parents, I came out of multiple generations in the Salvation Army, uh, multiple generations of preachers in the Midwest. I, my parents were deeply influenced by James Dobson and people like that and those type of disciplines that they learned. Um, dare to discipline, for a matter, matter of fact, was a part of like my very experience. I was into 1990s Christianity culture of 
DC Talk, True Love Waits, and all, and all those type of things. But nevertheless, like kind of sensing in that period, something different was happening in the mid-90s. Go to a Christian college. Um, many generations of my family went to Asbury University, where I started to sense a little bit more of what you identify later as a cultural engagement model, where we wanted to be a little bit more sensitive with the way we approach culture and influence change. I am like a very typical kind of evangelical story. Met my wife at an evangelical college. We got married at 22 and 21. We went into ministry. I went to seminary um, and then began to just have a sense that things were not as not the same as as how I grew up. And I know that that's probably the case for everybody along the way. But then um, really sensing that I needed to be able to respond appropriately to some of the changes that were happening in society. And then we get to the 20, you know, 2010s and I'm ex as I'm leading as a pastor, uh, we end up eventually just two years ago, homeschooling our, ch our children. After I had been homeschooled, our kids have been in Christian school. I feel like as I work through these various worlds, I've lived in these, these worlds. So now as that is my provisio, I'd love for you to just talk about this, um, this framework that you've developed between worlds. And maybe you all will see as he describes that, how I fit in. I think a lot of people in my audience probably fit into those descriptions. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, it, it really has resonated with just a ton of people. They're like, wow, this explains what I've experienced, what I've seen. And that's the point. It is to help you make sense of what you're seeing. And so it's fundamentally, it, it's something that's designed to be useful. It's not like something like Newton's second law of motion or something like that. It's <laughs> yeah. it's not a scientific law. It's not a theological framework. I'm not trying to give a doctrine to the Trinity. <clears throat> I'm trying to help people understand the world. And so the way I describe it is we never had a state church like they did in Europe. But mm -hmm. for most of American history, we did have a sort of softly institutionalized generic Protestantism as our default national religion. You know, go back to the 1950s. Half of all Americans went to church every Sunday. That was actually the high watermark of church attendance in America. We had prayer and Bible reading in the public schools. We were adding in God we trust to our money, under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Then in the 1960s, this starts to come unraveled. Uh, I date it to around 1964. Uh, Christianity begins to go into decline in America. Church attendance declines, personal adherence declines, and people uh, sort of begin to question the Christian moral framework. And so I divide this period of decline between 1964 and the present into three phases or worlds that I call the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. The positive world, which lasts from 1964 to 1994, is a period of decline for Christianity. I want to be clear on that. Yes, not yes. everything is going well. It's not positive in that sense. Church attendance is in decline. There's the sexual revolution, et cetera. At the same time, Christianity is still basically viewed positively in America. To be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society, and Christian moral norms are still the basic moral norms of society, and if you violate them, you can get in trouble. In 1994, we hit a tipping point and entered what I call the neutral world, which lasted from 1994 to 2014, where Christianity is not really seen positively anymore, but it's not really seen negatively yet either. It's just one more lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic public square. And, you know, we might meet, 
I'd say I'm a Christian. You might say, great, I'm a vegan. Let's sit down. Let's yeah, talk. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. And, and Kurt, the Christian moral system still had a sort of residual impact, a residual effect in this era. Then in 2014, we had a second tipping point where for the first time in the 400-year history of America, official elite culture now views Christianity negatively, or certainly at least skeptically. And yes, there were sort of elites and leaders all along who were not personally devout or who were skeptical of religion, going all the way back to the founding or maybe even before, but they felt compelled to hold religion publicly in honor. Now mm -hmm. that's no longer the case. To be known as a Bible-believing Christian does not help you get a job at Goldman Sachs or Google, quite the opposite, in fact. The Christian moral system is now expressly repudiated and in fact, is now viewed as the leading threat to the new public moral order. And this has been dislocating, to say the least, to many evangelicals. And of course, um, you know, the Methodist Church uh, is definitely experiencing some of the turmoil, I think, related to these uh, transitions. But all of evangelicalism is now sort of riven by intra kind of uh, intramural conflict, realignments, deconstruction. Uh, deformation, et cetera. And that's where we basically are today. That's really helpful. And I, I know you've talked about this multiple times, but I'm interested for you to define even how you get to the dates that you have, uh, like what happens in 94? What is it that, what are the, what's the, uh, the various things that came into making the decision to pivot there, but also uh, 2014. Some might think, well, 2015 is when Obergefell happened. That's a, um, the Supreme Court ruling, which made uh, same-sex marriage kind of the law of the land. What, what Help me understand the distinction in the dates. Sure. And I wouldn't get wedded to, to these particular dates. Okay. If you want to move it forward or backward a little bit, you know, knock yourself out. Um, you know, 1994, you know, you can have a debate. Should it have been 1989? Because mm. that was near the fall of the Berlin Wall. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War was a critical event in the evolution of how Christianity saw was viewed by society. I picked 1994 for um, two basic reasons. One, it was the Gingrich Revolution, in which the Republicans gained the House for the first time in forever, and really, in my view, represented the high watermark of religious right influence in America. 1994 was also the year Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor of New York, became mayor of New York. Mm -hmm. And we had this sort of urban renaissance that sent people back to the cities, and it created a very new and important social phenomenon and demographic, the urban, highly educated, progressive, that has so much influence on our culture and really continues to do so. And it was really in this time frame that we saw the transition to baby boomer leadership, notably with Bill Clinton becoming elected president. So that was also going on in this time frame. 2014 is a little more dialed in. I think you mentioned Obergefell in 2015. So, you know, you can obviously just say like one year before that. 2014 was also the year of the so-called Great Awakening. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, you know, secular commentators like Matthew Iglesias, uh, he co-founded Vox. He's on the left. He's, that's when he said, you know, 2014 is when people kind of went crazy on race. 2013 was when uh, NYU professor Jonathan Haidt said things started to go crazy on campus. And so, again, you know, the exact date we can argue, but really there was a sort of cultural rupture sometime during Obama's second term. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's important to, be... to note that this predated Donald Trump. And so mm -hmm. this can't be like chalked up as a reaction to him. 
And I might even argue that, you know, Donald Trump getting elected president is part of this transition as well. And in fact, he it's sort of a, I would say it is a, uh, a, a uh, an effect, not a cause, uh, but certainly shows that something fundamental has changed in the culture. Right. And what you you bring him up a few times, but also the distinction, even in what's happening in politics within the the three worlds, you bring up Gary Hart, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. I, t tell us how that fits into this, this these distinctions. Sure. So I illustrate the difference between these three worlds with three different presidential sex scandals. In the positive world, that was the 1987 scandal with Colorado Senator Gary Hart, who was the leading contender to be the Democratic nominee for president the next year. A newspaper reported that he'd had a young woman stay all night in his Washington, D.C. townhouse, and the resulting media firestorm caused him to have to drop out of the race. I mean, it's almost incredible to think that the idea that you had an affair would cause your presidential campaign to be torpedoed. Right. That certainly would not be the case. Uh, today. Fast forward to the neutral world, 1998, the Drudge Report breaks the story that Bill Clinton has been having an affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Now, Clinton was extremely badly damaged by this scandal. Uh, it did cost him a lot, probably why Bush was elected in 2000. Nevertheless, he survived it. Kind of Democrats rallied to the flag and said mm -hmm. his personal behavior, however deplorable it might have been, it is not relevant to his you know, professional performance in, in office, and he survived it. The Negative World Scandal, 2016, October, NBC News has been sitting on this tape from the set of Access Hollywood in which Trump uh, made various crude comments about women. And they've been sitting on this thing for months. They've had it. And they're like, mm. we're going to spring this on him as an October surprise, and we're going to get him, and it's going to sink his campaign. And in retrospect, it was basically a 48-hour blip of a scandal. He went on to win election uh, in you know just a couple of weeks. And I think that the Access Hollywood tape, and again, Trump shows the radical implications of the shift to the negative world. It's not just about sexuality. It's not just about how it affects the church. It affects everything. And I think there is a great irony that the very people who were most aggressive in tearing down all the old moral standards of society are the ones who are most horrified mm. by Donald Trump. And that's the kind of guy that in a previous era, positive or a neutral world, would not have been elected president. But now they're like, oh, you know, you evangelicals shouldn't vote for him because he's a bad man. And I'm, they're like, wait a minute, you've just spent the last 20, 30 years telling us that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Now, all of a sudden, you decide that it does. And again, I, I think there's a lot of other things. Um, you know, it's not in the book, but, you know, the metastasization of vice in our society and the fact that all these things that used to be the province of shady characters like the mob are now considered, you know, quote unquote, legitimate businesses worth billions of dollars. Mm. Great example would be gambling. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, you know, the the state lottery movement kind of I think really got going in the eighties maybe to the early nineties, and that was controversial. And here in mm -hmm. Indiana, you know, it was the Methodist Church who was I think led the charge against the constitutional amendment that allowed the state to establish a lottery. Well, today, of course, we've legalized sports betting on your phone. Uh, you know, it's it's like an, a massive industry. And I think about a guy like Pete Rose getting banned from baseball for life <laughs> because he supposedly bet on games. 
Well, now the, the, all the leagues and even the pro leagues and even colleges are now in on the gambling business. Right. These, you know, supposedly clean cut all American boys like Peyton and Eli Manning are now gambling pitchmen. Mm. I mean, even people like that, they do it. So it's a gambling course for legalizing pot or legalizing drugs. You know, other states are starting to legalize psychedelics. So now if you walk through one of our cities, there's clouds of, of pot smoke everywhere. We got rid of usury laws. And so now in poor neighborhoods in the city, there's a payday loan store uh, mm -hmm. on every mm -hmm. block and these predatory uh, actors, you know, the, definitely there's a push. It's not fully there yet to uh, essentially, uh, you, you know, normalize uh, prostitution and other things, as, as they would say, sex work. Right, Lots right, of people would treat, you know, something like OnlyFans as empowering. And certainly we have industrial strength porn now that, you know, the, the big players don't have much interest in shutting down. And so, um, you know, we'll see what happens there. But I mean, it's like the fact that this stuff is all now considered fully legitimate and preying on the most vulnerable members of our society, you know, that, that it's just, it's unseemly. I mean, even the incredible income inequality that we see with CEOs engorging mm -hmm, themselves mm -hmm. while they're offshoring people's jobs and, you know, the, the pay and all that stuff. It's like, it's a product of a change in the moral framework of society. So this shift to it in, in essentially... Uh, de-Christianized, post-Christianized, in some respects, anti-Christianized culture, the the impact of that is profound. Mm -hmm, mm. Another case that you use to describe this that's indicative of this moment is it, people might be surprised and and maybe even people who are my, my current students who might not have lived through this period is to look back to 2007-8 when Obama was running for a for election against McCain, that he went into Rick Warren's church with John McCain, a church that had recently led the charge against a proposition in the state to make it to to move against same sex marriage. Like the state of California voted to not have same sex marriage. I mean, it's hard to believe that that was just within the last fifteen years. But that's right. a sign of this of these worlds, the shift right. that happened. Absolutely. Now, interesting, like you find a few ways that people have responded to the challenges, not just uh, in the various phases of this framework. So you talk about three different groups. You talk about the cultural warriors, seeker-sensitive movement, and this is pretty on the church side. I was actually really interested to hear how you're describing what's happening on just the broad cultural side as well. I mean, just thinking about NFL owners being responsible and having part ownerships of DraftKings and these type of things, but seeing all of those other layers. But I am particularly interested in what this means for the church. The church has responded with the kind of cultural warrior side, the seeker-sensitive side, and then the cultural engagement. Could you explain what you have in mind with those three categories? Sure. I also look at like, you know, how did the evangelical church respond to this period of decline? And really, in essence, in a sense, evangelicalism is a product of this period mm. of decline. So if you go back to the 1950s, I was talking about, we were still sort of a, a country dominated by the mainline denominations. And as church attendance went into decline, that badly affected the mainline churches and mostly they've never really figured out how to crack the code on responding to that. And evangelicalism had superior adaptability to changing times and was really able, I think, to fill the vacuum that was left by the decline of many of the mainline denominations um, there. So um, I, I basically list sort of three strategies 
that evangelicals came up with. Uh, Let me jump in there real quick. Yeah. I'm sorry, because you make a helpful distinction. You don't use the kind of theological definition of evangelicalism, say like a David Bebbington right. historical perspective. You're thinking more in sociological terms, right? Yes, that's what I say. I, I, one of the things I say in the introduction is I define uh, – there's something called the the RALTRAD model. I think it stands for Religious Tradition, okay. and it's the model that social scientists use in surveys to code people's religious affiliations. And basically, they divide – in this system, they divide Protestants into three categories, mainline, black Protestant, and evangelical. And it's actually based on what denomination or church tradition that you are a part of. It has nothing to do with your theology or even your race. So if you were a black uh, person who attended a PCUSA Presbyterian church, you would be classified as mainline. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not it's not even a ra- it's not a racial survey. It's basically basically the uh, the different ones. And that's what I do. I don't try to come up with a theological approach. As I say, it's a sociological um, phenomenon. Yeah, sorry uh, to interrupt you. Mostly, I just felt yeah. like people might find that helpful as we're getting, yeah. you know, as you're getting into these responses, and, and and that's one of the critiques I think has been unfair that people have made about the, your very your model, the framework, is that they end up thinking, well, uh, the black church has always been in the negative world. Well, the the problem with that is like you're not necessarily looking at this as something that is intrinsic to somebody's identity, right? Is I mean, what's your basic response to that criticism? Well, yeah, yeah. So what I so what I basically say on that, one, you know, when I say, you know, go back to the 1950s. Yeah. Um, when I say that, you know, we had this sort of like softly institutionalized, you know, generic Protestantism, we did. That's like an objective fact. Now, that doesn't mean that America was always governed in accordance with Christian principles or that there mm-hmm. weren't injustices or things of that matter. Of course, it was. Jim Crow was going on, uh, for example, in the South. Um, but nevertheless, sort of, you know, Christianity was held in public honor. And I would also say, you know, this. Well, some of the critics like to say any bad experience that you have is an example of the negative world. That's not true. The negative world specifically refers to how elite culture, official culture in America views Christianity. And, you know, if you were in 1950s America and you were a black person who was discriminated against, you were also not being discriminated against because you were Christian. You were being discriminated against because you were black. Right. You could have renounced your faith, become a Muslim, and nothing is going to improve for you mm-hmm. in, in that world. And even, you know, a lot of the civil rights movement was, you know, basically positioned in a sort of uh, explicitly Christian register. Uh, you know, I, you know, so somebody like Martin Luther King, of course, was, you know, the Reverend Martin Luther right, King. Right, right. His, I believe his letter from Birmingham jail is uh, addressed to something like my dear, my fellow clergyman yes. or something like that. So he's actually writing and it's very theological, you know, if you read it. Uh, and so. He assumes yeah. the positive world. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, right. exactly. Exactly. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's so much going on there. So, that, you know, that's what I would that's what I would say uh, there on that. I do think like I think that that criticism is. um uh, kind of completely off base. It's like, you know, if you're suffering, why are you suffering? Are you suffering because you are a Christian? Are people persecuting you for your faith? And of course, there were certainly you know, individuals, always individuals who suffered for their faith at different points in time. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But the, the real question is, is you know, how does society, you know, view Christianity and its system as, and its identity, mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm. as a country? And so, you know, that's what I say there. 
Thank you. But, for, sorry to take yeah. you off, off track. We were talking about the, the three evangelical right. responses. Yeah. 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 So, um, so what I say is, you know, there are these three strategies that were developed, two in the positive world, one in the neutral world. In the positive, you had the culture war strategy and the secret sensitivity strategy. And in the neutral world, you had the cultural engagement strategy. So the culture war is the religious right that we know. It emerged in the 1970s as part of a movement that was known as the new right, led by people like, uh, in, in the uh, religious right came out of people like Jerry Falwell with Moral Majority, mm-hmm. Pat Robertson and his empire. Um, and this group of people saw that, you know, things were not going their way on, you know, public morality and things of that nature. And their response was to mobilize politically to fight back. It's like, we're going to take back the country mm-hmm. uh, and we're, we're going to fight. And um, again, I think the very name moral majority speaks to the positive world when mm-hmm. it was at least plausible to claim might not have been true even then, but it was at least plausible to claim, you know, that Christians spoke for the majority of the country. Mm-hmm. Nobody would make that today. And of course, this group is still with us. This is the religious right that we know. The, the second strain in the 1970s was secret sensitivity pioneered by people like Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, which was actually in the 80s, or Bill Hybels and um, Willow Creek Willow Church Creek. in suburban Chicago. And so, um, you know, what happened was these guys saw that people weren't going to church. And so they say, why don't we design a church that people want to attend? So the origin story of Willow Creek is that Bill Hybels went door to door in suburban Chicago asking people why they didn't go to church. And as he said, I got an earful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he then designed a church that would appeal to them. So it was free of denominational distinctives or baggage, he might have said, you know, no choir robes and stodgy hymns and organs. It's going to be informal. It's going to be um, uh, uh, sort of uh, contemporary music. It's going to have therapeutic topical sermons, et cetera. And this is really the, you know, non-denominational suburban megachurch that we all know that in many ways represents the evangelical mainstream. A lot of baby boomer suburbanites. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was really a product of baby boomer suburbanization. And I would say this group of churches was quite politically conservative, typically voted Republican, but um, in a very different register than mm-hmm. the other ones. Then in the neutral world in the 1990s, we saw the emergence of a third strategy called cultural engagement, pioneered by people like Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. I think there are a couple of ways to think about this one. One is you can think about it as a seeker sensitivity for the cities. As the cities came back, these folks wanted to reach urban residents, these kind of upscale uh, urban residents, in the same way that uh, Hybels and Warren had reached the suburbanites, uh, you know, a little bit earlier. A second way to think about it is the opposite of the culture war strategy. Hmm. Rather than fight with people all the time, they're like, why don't we take advantage of this pluralistic public square that we have to have a conversation with people? Yeah, yeah. And try to articulate the gospel in a way that actually wins friends, not enemies. And so all and this is really the really the Christianity of um again urban and college town Christianity and the sort of uh the, the sort of ethos of you might call it the quote unquote evangelical elites mm-hmm. to a great extent. And uh, again, all three of these are still with us um today. As we've entered the negative world, the question is, well, what's the strategy for the negative world? And the answer is there really hasn't been one. Mm-hmm. You know, what we see is uh there was one guy who put out an, a, an idea for what to do. And that was Rod Dreher with his book, The Benedict Option in 2017. Yeah, yeah. And evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict Option. So Christianity Today magazine 
commissioned four people to write essays uh, reflecting on the book, and all four of them have substantial criticisms of it. And, you know, yes, I do think, you know, he, he's a he was a Eastern Orthodox, formerly Roman Catholic. He'd be the first person to tell you he doesn't know anything about the evangelical world. Hmm. So clearly things like using the monastery as his example didn't really play well. But I think there was a, still, a great sense of denial. He also had a little bit of the misfortune of his book coming out right as Donald Trump was about to take office. Mm. In fact, his book was essentially written assuming Trump was going to lose initially. And then I think mm. he had to make a, a few revisions to it because basically I think it's like you're saying that the sky is falling, Rod, and here is Donald Trump has just been elected president. It seems a little, you know, yeah, uh, a little off. But I think there really was, it was sort of a sense of denial. I think there's much less the case today. But nevertheless, there really hasn't been what I call a negative world strategy emerge. And instead, we've sort of seen what I would call it realignment. Uh, uh, some people are sort of switching teams. Other people are deconstructing. And we're also seeing deformation of some of these strategies. And so the culture war people have essentially doubled down. Mm. And they're like, you know, what we need to do now is take the gloves off mm. uh, and really fight. This time, we're really going to fight. And so this group, I think we see the change and um, it's probably a little more uh, Machiavellian maybe than it, it used to be where like, you know, I think go back to Clinton scandals. People would have just said, look, moral character is paramount in a political leader. If you don't have moral character, nothing else matters. Bill Clinton is simply morally unfit for office. Then when it comes to, you know, 2016 election, they're like, well, you know, we can't let Hillary win, can we? Right. It's like re realpolitik sort of a rules a day. So I think that's one. Uh, I think that's kind of what we've seen there. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, some people that are, you know, it's a variety of people there. Some people sort of held their nose and voted for Trump. You know, others, you know, were enthusiastic. But I think that's kind of what's happened. Then on the, on the cultural engagement side, I think we've seen a shift away from engagement uh, towards what I call synchronization with the culture. Right. This there, is really they, interesting. They, uh, and, and I think, you know, they really haven't changed a lot theologically but their rhetoric has morphed a lot and they overwhelmingly like to stress the ways in which they agree with the culture and tend to minimize or nuance the ways that they're in disagreement with it. And mm -hmm. so they talk a ton about racism. Uh, they, they talk a ton about, um, you know, refugees and things like that, you know, but when it comes to something like abortion, they want to talk about being, you know, holistically pro-life and, you know, right anti-death penalty advocacy is a life issue and care for the immigrants is a life issue. And, you know, more welfare for single mothers is a, is a life issue. It's, it's stuff like this. So it's like yeah. they, they emphasize, they try to emphasize that stuff uh, more so uh, than that. And the other thing is like, this group is really, um, is coming to define themselves as opponents of the culture warriors, just mm -hmm. as the culture sure. war was defined as, you know, basically exists in its very nature, by opposition to the culture, the culture engagement people who originally, I think, had their own agenda, they didn't necessarily spend a lot of time like criticizing other evangelicals. Right. They sort of have a sort of positive agenda. Now, almost everything they do, I mean, it's, probably, it's an exaggeration. I shouldn't say that. A lot of what they do is explicitly with regards to, you know, cultural, cult, culture war people that they, they dislike. Yes. And so I think if, you know, the the Atlantic reporter, Tim Alberta, who has a new book out called The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, is a perfect example of this. And it's basically just a vicious attack against Trump voting evangelicals while sort of putting the cultural engager types on a sort of moral pedestal. 
Mm-hmm. And so you see, you see a lot of this. I think that the uh, the Heat gets us Super Bowl. Yeah, rings, I wanted fall, to get fall in, in that. this category because you know last year, like I got in trouble last year when when they put out their articles, when they put out their their Super Bowl ads in 2023. I actually defended them. Right. I said, look, this is in the book uh, you do too, and in the book, the, I mean, I actually they, look. You have you read this book, you will see example. me say positive things about the Heat gets us campaign. And, you know, right. it was really, you could criticize various aspects of it, but they were studiously apolitical. They were trying to, this year's He Gets Us campaign was very explicitly culturally and politically left. And so mm-hmm. the foot washing ad, essentially, you know, every last one of the scenes is somehow related to a, kind of a cultural uh, theme. But the point, um, uh, the point I want to make on that one, there was one, which was a scene from an abortion clinic. And right. there's somebody, the good, you know, the good person is washing the feet of this girl who presumably just had an abortion. While in the background, there's this group of uh, uh, anti-abortion protesters who are sort of, but their backs turned ignoring the scene. And they're clearly the bad guys. Mm-hmm, and so the point mm-hmm. here is, you know, one is, you know, you could say it's the posture of like not condemning abortion. Uh, you know, it's not going to make a condemnation of abortion. But more importantly, and this is what I think is critical, they can't help but talk about the evil abortion protesters over there. It's really becoming like an inseparable part of how a lot of them engage with the world. Uh, you know, they're really, they're in the, I think that's a very unhealthy way to engage with the world. It wasn't enough to just put this thing up here. They gave your perspective. You also right. had to take a pot shot at them in the Super Bowl. And so I think that's that's kind of the reality of, of what's been going on there. And of course, it's now, you know, again, the culture war has moved from essentially, you know, you know, the outside of the church to now it's inside of the church. And yes. uh, to be clear, I mean, the cultural and the culture warriors, their giving as good as they're getting. OK, these guys are not, uh, you know, they're they're definitely like, you know, hostile as well. And so, um, yeah, that's what we're seeing. And that's kind of what I'm seeing. And I think, look, you know. We ought to think, you know, think more critically about how to engage, you know, and how to structure our lives, our ministries, et cetera, in this in this negative world. Yeah. And they end up having this uh, identity that comes through the differentiation apart from a whole nother group of people. And as somebody who has prayerfully stood in front of an abortion clinic, you know, you can't help but see that as an attack on you or attack on what you're trying to do. And like, it's, it's assuming that there are bad motives there. And kind of the the message as a whole is those people say they're uh, representing Jesus, but they're not. This is the person who is now just last week I had on, I had a panel on to talk about that. He gets us campaign and the kind of the challenge, the challenge of the, if using even the idea of foot washing, but it seems like it's pushing against a certain version of Christianity to say, no, this is what actually is. And I had an interesting experience. The fact that the, one of the firms, there there are at least two major marketing firms that are part of this. One of them is called Lerma, and they were the, the executives who are part of that team were also the ones who influenced the Salvation Army, a group that I was a, a part of, you know, a denomination with more than a million members around the globe, but certainly America's uh, favorite charity, most recognized charity that comes from an evangelical Wesleyan holiness heritage. About 20, 25 years ago, they came, the kind of the antecedents to Lerma, it was another firm at the time, developed um, 
I would call it more of the, the, the cultural engagement branding package for the army, which used to be the branding promise used to be heart to God and hand to man or like soup, soap and salvation or there's any of Instead, it became doing the most good, doing the most good. Right. Oh, and, yeah. and what's that? This is that kind of uh, same sort of perspective, which is we don't want to actually offend anybody by calling out what might be involved. Now, they're not they're, certainly the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, would have been classified as a cultural warrior for sure, <laughs> like wanting people to recognize their sin and like have it all out there in the reality of hell and all of that is in front of people so that you could see what a loving God would do. But at the same time, it's led to a minimization of the ecclesial heritage that's a part of the movement. So so when I see that ad, when I see he gets us, I, well, I kind of know the people who are involved in it at the, on one side. I can't help but see this hasn't helped. This uh, My point is with doing the most good, that branding idea and that package has certainly in helped the profit or the the profits of the nonprofit, but it hasn't helped the ecclesial identity or the disciple making function of the tradition. And so my concern is the same thing would happen with he gets us. I don't want to be a cultural warrior. I mean, who wants to say, oh, I'll I'll claim that that task. Now, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that with um with the He Gets Us campaign and how that might connect a little bit more with what could happen in the church. Yeah, well, one of the things, you know, when I initially came up with this this idea of the three worlds in 2014, so that may be <laughs> one of the reasons why I picked that date. Uh, I sort of, you know, had this insights and I started writing out a bunch of bullet points feverishly. And um, actually, it was after I saw a series of short films called For the Life of the World at Indiana Wesleyan University. Mm. Uh, I drove back and I typed up a bunch of stuff because I thought the films were great, but I thought they were the films for like the world that was ending. Mm. And soon we would be in a different environment. And, um, you know, at the time, what I thought was there was going to be some once there you had to incur a material status penalty to become a Christian, there would be a mass blowout. Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. people leaving the church. That did not happen. Um, definitely, we've seen an uptick in deconstruction. Um, I think that's very related to changing times. You know, um, at 2022, the uh, uh, Christianity Today ran an article about how, you know, among Gen Z, there's no longer a gender gap in church attendance. Hmm. Um, you know, it used to be significantly more women than men attending church. That's no longer the case in younger hmm. cohorts. And I think one reason is, you know, uh, the status, the loss of status of Christianity has sort of like, you know, repelled, you know, a lot of a lot of women for the church. You know, it's become it is sort of becoming a repellent in some respects um, for people. But really, I think what ended up happening was I didn't anticipate that what people did is is this sort of synchronization towards the culture. Right. And, you know, what. What I said was, you know, let's call it the negative world, but it, it might be better called suspicious than negative. Merely identifying as a Christian does not does not necessarily get you like in trouble. Mm. Um, it's just that the contents of your Christianity cannot vary materially from mainstream secular um, consensus. So someone like Pete Buttigieg can say, I'm an Episcopalian. And he's not sure. going to get in trouble for that. You know, Raphael Warnock, who is a Christian pastor who is in the now in the U U.S. Senate, 
right? Nobody ever calls him a Christian nationalist. He's right. not attacked by people. Um, and so this idea where essentially a uh, a sort of denatured Christianity uh, that's compliant with the culture is okay, uh, but you know one that conflicts with the culture is not, pro- creates an incentive for people whose Christian identity is important to them to find a way to bring that in as into sync with the culture as they possibly can, because people respond incredibly to status signals. They do. And so, so what I said is, this is more of a mainline trajectory where, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, uh, you know, the cultural engagers become much more, um, you know, uh, driven by the culture than influencing the culture. And they sort of get dragged along with it. They retain, you know, their cachet uh, for a while, but they begin slowly, kind of a, what I call the slow bleed. You mm. start losing, you know, over over time. And I, 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 to bring it back to He Gets Us, I think that the uh, the Super Bowl ads this year in He Gets Us were very much in a mainline register. Mm. And here's what I mean by that: those ads basically portray Jesus as an ethical teacher and a moral exemplar, which of course he is. But that's what mainline Protestantism always said. You know, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a great moral example. They just didn't believe he was the son of God, right? I mean, they may have said that, but they didn't believe he was, you know, rose from the dead. They didn't believe any of that. And so, you know, whereas I think if you go back to, um, to even the 20, you know, you look some of the other ads that he gets us, the whole idea was to portray uh, Christ as relatable. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he understands us. So there was one, there was a great ad called Physician that was in their campaign. And uh, it uh, it shows this guy who's like a doctor during COVID and how he's getting beaten down by all this. And they talk about it. And, it, you know, um, it sort of talked about, you know, how Jesus felt, you know, Jesus was hurt by people's sufferings too. And it also, of course, so so it makes reference. It also kind of say, you know, Jesus was made like in all ways unto his brothers. Therefore, he's able to sympathize with us because right. it emphasizes that aspect of him. Also sort of emphasizes uh, Christ as the healer, the one who physically healed and is sort of the great physician of the soul. I, I can't, you know, it's, it's not the, the well who need a doctor. It's the sick, all that stuff. So very good there. And then even the Super Bowl ads last year, um, you know, the, there was one called Love Your Enemies. Right. So you could say that's an ethical teaching. But frankly, if they hadn't put Love Your Enemies in the URL at the end of it, you would not take away from that video that the message of it was to love your enemies. The tag, the actual tagline on it was Jesus love the people we hate. It mm-hmm. sort of showed that the universality uh, of Christ's love, it was less about, you know, uh, why can't we all just get along? Whereas mm-hmm. this year was very clear. And then the other one uh, last year was um, be childlike. Uh, and uh, so it was like a little, these little kids running around doing things. It's like, Jesus didn't want us to act like grownups or something like that was their tagline, which of course is a reference to the scripture that unless you come as like a child. So it's almost like referencing that. So again, this year it's the mainline emphasis, not mm. to say that Jesus wasn't a, you know, a moral teacher, but they're emphasizing the things about him that are very consonant with a mainline traditional liberal mainline i shouldn't say that but it's, you know uh, liberal mainline yeah. perspective on um liberal protestant perspective on christ and so i think that trajectory 
uh, of course, it's not set in stone. We don't know how it's going to it's going to go. But I think the focus on like doing good works and things, things of that nature, um, uh, seeing seeing the currents of culture as reflecting God at work and therefore our joining of the culture uh, is, uh, you know, kind of aligning with what God is doing. The very much the Christ of culture model from H. Richard right. Niebuhr. I think it's it's like that sort of mainline emphasis. I think that's um, that's a po- certainly a possible trajectory uh, for a, a, any number of people. It it's helpful to be able to think through that in a in a critical way. Also, I appreciate you bringing up where it's been, and we don't know where it's going altogether. But it's certainly there's good reason for people to have caution with it. And you have uh, maybe we'll get into it if you meant some positive words for free evangelism as an idea. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, so when it comes to things like, I mean, what I try to do is try to be independent, fair, you know, honest, you know, uh, you know, rigorous, uh, you know, authentic in my work. And so I want to call them like I see them here. And so, you know, I think, you know, when they do, when he gets us, does great things, like I want to say positive things about, about it. And I yeah. like to find things positive to say about people. But, you know, again, this year, I really thought it was uh, not good. Let me just put it that way. So I'm going to, I'm going to say that. So. Uh, you know, I might not have said anything, but after I put it, after my book just came out and I say nice things about them in the book, right. like, then those ads come out like, oh no, I'm going to get, I'm going to get uh, crushed. But yeah, I mean, um, you bring but, you up know, the comparisons with Rod Dreher a few times and um, the Benedict option. One, one way that he did that was interesting um, and just shows how culture and intra-Christian culture changes quite a bit. He looked at the what's often identified now as side B Christianity or kind of the gay Christianity movement that would say, well, we're going to have an orthodox position about activity, but identity is something that's based upon our sexual identity. And so he had some positive words on a couple of pages for those for that movement, uh, sometimes called the spiritual friendship movement. But it didn't take but a few months after where that was on a totally different side than what he actually realized where it was going. And, I, and while I'm thinking about it, I, just, I, I feel like your book, and I, as much as I appreciate um, Benedict Option, to me, like the idea of getting into a community, a community of support that will help you deal with what's happened, as you call it, the negative world, that's been something that I've adopted. I mean, the, these type of works have helped me think through this. Uh, I've, I've pivoted careers in this time to serve at a seminary where we're training leaders. And I left a denomination where I've been serving like six generations of my family. I've been a part of it in part because I think there's something that needs to be from, from my own children. There needs to be a, a different response in light of what's happening in society. Um, but I also I also appreciate about your book, like Roger's book, but I think what you have will have a, has an ability to connect with the evangelical world a little bit more. Is it it's you don't just identify this framework at the same time, you also and you're not trying to prescribe what everything should look like, but you give some starting points for how to respond. And you do that in through three three different ways. One is like what we should do personally, but institutionally, but then also a missional task. And so I appreciate that emphasis. I'd love to just think through a few of those ideas with you. Like when you think about what needs to happen personally, people needing to take responsibility to be resilient. These are key ideas. Maybe one of those points, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but one of those points of how people respond personally might be something um, that you could address here. 
Maybe, let's, be, let's hit the resilience. I, I love yeah, that yeah. chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you know, when um, Christianity is viewed positively, then, um, you know, you don't have to take account of how being Christian is going to affect you. If it's going to affect you, it's probably going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, I want, and I always stress, and I think I make it clear in the book, you know, there's no, I don't think that Christians are being persecuted in America. Right. Now, there may be an isolated case here and there where people uh, experience what you could call persecution. Um, you know, but that's what I say. Uh, people like to take isolated, you know, injustices and turn them into pervasive societal wide problems. Um, I think we've seen that on many things. Um, I think it, I think we don't. But again, our society, you know, it doesn't do what China does and throws you in jail. You know, you're not going to be a victim of sectarian violence here like you might be in, say, Nigeria or India. But what we do have is a society that puts subtle forms of pressure on people that can mm. maybe be more difficult to recognize and respond to. Uh, and, you know, the example I like to say is, look, you know, Paul was stoned. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. All this stuff. But thrown in jail. But nobody ever took away his ability to feed himself by being a tent maker. <laughs> he could always mm -hmm. make money. Yes, tent maker. yes. Well, today, you know, you might be a lose your job, uh, you know, or something like that if you say the wrong thing. And even though that, that may not happen to most people, we've seen it happen to enough people, not necessarily for being Christian, for just, you know, any sort of violation of these secular taboos, you could find yourself zapped. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes your number just comes up. And so I do think in kind of our world today, we have to be more intentional in thinking through things like, where should I live? Mm -hmm. uh, what career should I pursue? How much, um, you know, how much debt should I take on? How high, how high a lifestyle should I live? A lot of things like that. And structure our lives to create uh, you know, more resiliency in the face of hostility. So I was living, you know, in New York City, uh, working for a nonprofit there. Uh, I had, a, you know, a wife and a young son. We moved back to Indiana. <laughs> like, well, we, you know, staying in New York, not a good idea. We moved back. And then again, a year ago, we moved from downtown Indianapolis to the suburbs, you know, because, you know, uh, a lot of reasons to do that, you know, but one of them is just the reality is, that this downtown environment is culturally unfriendly territory. Actually, much more unfriendly than, say, the Upper West Side of New York. I mean, I think, uh, you know, New York is actually a quite uh, safe place to, to be as a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, dissident or contrarian thinker in a lot of ways, much more so wow. than some of these flyover cities, believe it or not. Hmm. And so we're out, you know, now we're out in the suburbs. Oh, by the way, my wife and I are both from here. So we're in a place that's culturally familiar. Our family is nearby. That makes sense. And so... These are things that we do. If we, you know, if we were in New York City, you know, we'd be more isolated. We'd have massively higher expenses, uh, more life stresses, and uh, not that everything's perfect here by any means. And, and you know, and oh, that that's the decision for everyone. For mm -hmm. many people, living in New York is a great decision. And so I think the key is we need to just intentionally consider it in terms of things like that. And we also have to consider. Again, it's not just about the religious dimension when you look at our society. Um, how do we uh, successfully 
reduce our you know risk exposure to things like drugs. You know, the the son of the former CEO of YouTube just died of a fentanyl overdose yesterday wow. and at Berkeley. And you know, this is something that's affecting not just poor people, it's affecting everybody. Huge risk to your kids from drugs today. How do you what do you do? You got to think about this stuff. You know, our society, you know, you know, think about your you got a young son, he's got this phone, he likes sports. You might end up in enormous debt from gambling. Like lots of people are having that. They're getting sucked into the phone gambling. Mm. And you're going up against uh, corporations with billions of dollars that are employing psycholog top psychologists mm. and, and psychological research and addiction technology to get people hooked on that stuff. You can't, you're not going to beat these people. Mm. It's asymmetric warfare. And so you got to spend a lot of time thinking about how you structure your life uh, there. Now, I, I do think, um, you know, some of the old, approaches that people had like i just won't let my kids uh right. you know, listen to rock and roll music they won't yeah, get any yeah. bad influences it's a pure purely insulating right right it's not practical so we have to be equipping people yes i love and that so, distinction you know so we now need to say look you're going to it's like it's like a lot of people you know it's like the it's like the smartphone everybody knows the smartphones have these horrible impacts on young children so you could say i'm just not going to get my kid a phone He's right. just not going to have one. Right, right. Well, at some point they're going to turn eighteen. They're going to go go. They're going to move out. They're going to go to college. They're going to go to job. They're going to move out. And then what's going to happen? They're probably going to get a phone. Right, right. You're gonna you're gonna and have then, to learn to deal deal with it at some so point. So, at some point you have you know it's I think you know if you haven't like done anything it's like they're going to get exposed to this stuff cold. And again, there's no there's no one size fits all. So. You know, anything you do, okay, I'm going to give my 16-year-old a phone. Oh, now there's this. So it's so like there's no risk-free solution here. Yes. And different people are going to come to different choices, and I think that's fine. But it's the sort of thing we have to think about. Yes. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond to all of these things that are in our culture that are antithetical to human flourishing, that put you at risk from your, your faith, et cetera? I love the way that you, you so quickly say that. It's like... Um, you're not going to insulate. Instead, we're going to prepare people. Oh man, I just lost. Some, what's the word that you said? Insulating, not insulating, but equipping. Equipping. Yes, like that was. I read that out loud to my family just to make sure. Like we get this is what we're trying to do. We ran the exact same thing as uh, we we finally we had held off for a long time in a similar way that you know going back to the positive world, the cultural warrior side. Um, you know, my family held off on secular music, held off on all these type of things. We but but still. We had to get to a place where that time will come, where you have to make this decision on your own. I, I found this to be um, the, an interesting change of direction when you say that we now have to be, like you say, the moral majority was an assumption of the positive world. But now we really have to learn as an evangelical community how to live as a moral minority. And interesting with that, is you point us to at least one group, a few different other uh, religious groups who've learned to live as moral minorities. And you point out the, uh, the Catholic tradition, which interestingly, I also thought the social stratific stratification that you showed, how the Catholic Church has been able to have people from various social um, 
financial, socioeconomic categories stay within them. But but you look to them as as a, maybe a guide, not theologically, but how we might be able to persist in this negative world as a my a moral minority. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I said, well, how do you learn from other minorities? Uh, it's tough to go from being a majority to a minority. And, um, you know, there's there's minorities who've been very impressive, like Jews or Sikhs, but mm -hmm. they're small. They're very small uh, communities. They're not as large, you know, as evangelicals. They're also ethnically linked. And so what would be a good comparison? And what I came up with is how about early 20th century Catholicism? Because America really was sort of an anti-Catholic uh, anti country. Uh, at that time. And these folks said, well, if we want to live as faithful Catholics in this Protestant country, we have to create an ecosystem or an environment or an economy that allows us to do so. So they created all their parochial schools. Mm -hmm. They created the Catholic universities. They created Catholic fraternal societies, all this Catholic infrastructure that allowed them to, uh, you know, identify, sustain, pass on community life. And even when they were admitted to the mainstream institutions, they never let go of that. Mm, and so, yeah. you know, we need to be thinking like that in terms of uh, what what to do. Uh, to learn, learning from people like that, maybe also learning from the Mormons. You know, the Mormons were on the outs for a very long time. And um, I mean, talk about some people who who did get persecuted. The Mormons were basically persecuted. And, uh, you know, so uh, and yet look, look how impressive. Uh, the Mormons are today in in terms of um, uh, you know uh, many dimensions. Their influence, of life. yeah, yeah, th their influence. They're they're very very financially successful. They're growing, you know, and uh, you can learn a lot. And they're still, um, you know, they still have great family formation rates and things of that nature. I mean, if you look at so many statistics, like Utah is like a foreign country. <laughs> you know, mm, it's like it's like how much you know. It's like wow, wouldn't it be great if America looked a lot like Utah? What could we learn from them? Uh, for example. And again, I don't think there, you know, these situations are there. Like one of the things that's different about Protestantism is Catholic Catholicism is kind of one integrated church. Mm -hmm. And um, if you split, if you, if you become schismatic, there are issues with becoming schismatic theological issues that don't apply in the case of Protestantism. Um, you know, uh, Mormonism, you know, there was, there were some schisms early. So there's different Mormon groups, but they're also more unitary uh, and how they run things is very top down, I think, in some ways. So the sort of uh, free for all that is American Protestantism, uh, you know, is, is a little different. But again, I'm not saying you just pick up what somebody else did and, and adopt it, but you could learn from it. You yeah, certainly we're not going to have the same theological structure as another institution, but how they as an institution in general just respond to challenges might be something we can learn yeah. from. And I think that, you know, evangelicals have been doing this a bit organically. So we've seen the creation of this, you know, vast uh, educational infrastructure, much of it just in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, you must have been like a first generation homeschool kid. I was. Um, yeah. Th you thank know? you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it was quite different, you know. And so, like, you know, now, like, there's there's uh, you know, something like 11 percent of Americans kids are homeschooled. Like that's a ton. Yeah. It's not all Christians. A lot of them are obviously. There's the you know Christian school movement, the classical Christian school movement. Um, basically, they're they're saying we got to create our own uh, create our own infrastructure here, and uh, that's an example of of um, of doing it. No, that that's really helpful. Yeah, I was I was in that first group. I was I graduated high school in 1998. So the internet was just coming around. So it was a whole another time. But now my kids are on um homeschool basketball teams that travel around. There's 
pockets. Uh, there's there's choices just even in the Jackson, Mississippi metro area of what type of co-op learning opportunities are available. It's amazing what happens. Uh, and I'm interested in what you think about like what happens for institutions. Like for instance, I serve institution that's serving the church in this time. And like, we have to think about how we are going to respond to a cultural changes and to be able to be flexible yet nimble, but yet also wanting to be responsive. You have some helpful words, institutions as well. What is it? What is it? How can an institution be prepared to respond to this negative world? Well, there's a lot to think about. I mean, I think institutions have a hard time adapting to changing times. There's a certain kind of DNA that mm -hmm. gets founded in an institution. It's very difficult to change that. Um, a lot of evangelical institutions are still very boomer dominated. And um, I think as our, uh, as our sort of overall society, which is, you know, still has a lot of old people kind of running it, um, you know, they're not likely to change at that mm, stage mm -hmm, of life. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, oh, let's reinvent the thing. Yeah. Probably not going to happen. Right. And so, um, and so what I would say though, and one of the things I'd hone in on is, uh, you know, again, um, it, you know, is focusing on what I call, you know, just institutional integrity. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's declining trust in institutions in our society that's eminently deserved. In fact, I might argue that many of our institutions are still too trusted relative to the mm. amount of trust they actually deserve. So we need to behave in a manner that's worthy of trust, you know, mm -hmm. being good stewards of people's money, <laughs> for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so you see, you know, the number of churches and ministries with scandals is just absurd, you know, um, you know, uh, infidelity scandals, financial scandals, people getting rich uh, off of a nonprofit ministry, uh, you know, abuse scandals uh, and um, things of that nature. And so it's like, wow, we had to like clean up our own act there. I think we have to make sure we got competent people like in charge that, that know what they're doing. And like, you know, we have a competence crisis, I think, you know, and we say like a great example, this uh, Boeing plane, this Alaska Airlines plane with a, this door plug blew out in mid flight. I guess everybody saw that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you can't have that sort of thing happen. So, you know, if that happens, if this equivalent of that happens to your institution, that's a problem. Yeah. So you, you need to have competent, you know, on top of it, leadership. And then the other thing I talk about is missional integrity. Yes. Um, which I think is maybe the most important part. And I use integrity here, not just in the terms of like, you know, honesty and all of that, but in terms of like structural integrity. When the pressure of the negative world bears down on your institution and your church, is it going to crumble? Is it going to deform? Mm. Is it going to mm -hmm, collapse? Mm -hmm. Right. Like a submarine getting exploded or, you know, a plane, something bad happens to it. And it means you have to understand, you have to have clarity about what your mission is and then stay on it. Because I think a lot of people want to pull you off mission. And so, like, I mean, I can tell you 100% that a lot of these churches, they're constantly getting pressure from various people to uh, talk more about race or talk mm -hmm. more about this or talk more about that. A lot of these churches that had no real history of, like, talking about racial issues all of a sudden went woke. And, mm. like, big changes in like a very short period of time. And these people are just getting blown here and there by the wind. The latest fad, they're onto it. Now, mm. obviously, you know, when the world changes, we have to change with it, but we have to have a good understanding of what our mission is and where we stand on things and be able to, to stay with that. And I think the institutions that are able to do that are the ones that are really going to differentiate themselves. And, you know, the example that's not a per se a, a Christian example that I think has really, it's kind of embarrassing 
uh, in a lot of ways is Hillsdale College. You know, mm. Hillsdale was sort of a regional, you know, liberal arts college not that long ago that drew most of its kids from Michigan, right? It wasn't even like right. this. Now they're, they're extremely selective. They're approaching Ivy League levels of selectivity. Uh, you know, only 21% of applicants get admitted to Hillsdale. Uh, you know, donations are pouring in the door, you know, there because they really articulated a unique vision of what they are, their distinctives around traditional liberal education, around the American founding and American sort of political and cultural values. And it's resonated with a ton of people. Mm. And, you know, they've really said this is what makes us distinct. They've doubled down on their distinctives and they've held firm yeah. uh, on it. And, you know, they, um, you know, even with, uh, you know, I think even like they navigated the COVID thing, you know, relatively well and saying, you know, OK, we're going to we're going to try to keep going. We know these people are coming after us. There's these issues. And at the same time, you know, they took some heat from for people from being too, too, uh, you know, too responsive to COVID. There was no win situation there, but they navigated that very well. And uh, which a lot of people didn't. And and so, you know, they're going from strength to strength. Whereas I think a lot of the, you know, the Christian, you know, more explicitly Christian colleges, um, you know, have not articulated that unique, compelling uh, vision of who they are. What is what makes you distinct? And so for your own institution, you know, just having that, you know, understanding of, you know, your core values, what makes you distinct? Why are people going to choose you? What's your mission? And being able to, to stay on that and articulate that and like hold firm to that, I think is very key in a world where there's a lot of pressures and things, you know, all over the place taking here and there. Yeah, that is part of what's the story of Wesley Biblical Seminary has been that we held to this. We're an evangelical Wesleyan institution and we held to biblical inerrancy and the reality and promise of the sanctified life of, of, of pursuing, seeking, sanctifying grace in this life. These are like things that actually marginalized us as an institution for most of our history. But then, like as we've held to these beliefs, along comes the Global Methodist Church and other denominations that have like held to these sort of standards that we have. And now it's opened up the doors to us to be able to serve this denomination. Hence, we have like more students now. We almost have more students right now than we do alumni across our 50-year history. And, and also there's a flexibility too that we've adapted to the online environment. And I have a friend who teaches at Hillsdale. And one of the things that he described, he used to be in R1 school. Um, he describes how awesome the students are. Like just um, how okay. amazing, like they come wanting this type of rigor and from that particular type of tradition. I, I love too an emphasis you have in the book when you're thinking about the mission of institutions is that they they have to have also not just a the, these these core uh, convictions, but also they need to be thinking multi generationally. Yes. Like that's often and that's missing. It's like we have a, and you you use the example Hezekiah from scripture. I appreciate that too. I know I, I might be getting close on your time, but I'd love for you to comment on that. Like why multi-generational, a uh, multi-generational perspective is what we might need. Yeah. Well, a lot of, uh, especially a lot of churches, you know, they, they're founded and they grow under a charismatic uh, pastor and, you know, people are there. And then when, you know, when that guy leaves, you know, what happens? So you have to have a plan for like the next generation of leadership. And I think a lot of these places, um, they haven't really raised up a new generation of leader. Again, a lot of them are still sort of dominated by uh, kind of 
older folks. And so I, I think there is a point of, you know, and there's also, uh, you know, a, a sense in which, you know, a leader can say, you know, I never personally crossed the line on anything uh, theologically, but you, I, I brought my church right up to the edge of the line. And now when I'm gone, if the next generation crosses, right, they cross yeah. into it. You, you can't say that you had nothing to do that or you yeah. with that. And so if things go, you know, if, if things go off the rails after you step down from an institution as its leader, then most likely you have something to do with that. Now mm. you're not to blame completely. Oh, it's your, all your fault. Right. And you know, that's not that true. It's not true at all either. But like, you know, if you screw up the succession plan, if, you know, there's issues there. Um, if you don't, you know, if you leave your, you know, successor at a pile of debt and a whole lot of other things, um, you know, then then you got to take some responsibility for that. So thinking, and I just think, you know, we we have to have a transcendent perspective on the world, which is to say, you know, we need to be, you know, we need to be eternally minded in the sense that, um, and not that we're looking for God to teleport us off this rock. But the point is that ultimately our ultimate inheritance is in heaven. Yes. We should be storing up treasures in heaven. So if we if we can't if we don't understand that there's values beyond this world, we're missing something important. And I also think that that applies within this world, having a perspective that goes beyond our own life or our own yes. tenure. You know, the, the the cathedrals, famously the cathedrals of Europe, were started by people who knew they would never see those projects completed. Yes. It took hundreds yes. of years sometimes to build these cathedrals. And um, it's like the proverbial man planting a tree under whose shade he will never sit. Mm. And unfortunately, what we've had in America is a generation that's liquidating future value. Like, how can we take all the future money off the table uh, for ourselves? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I went through a company that had been a partnership. Uh, I worked for a company that was a partnership and they IPO'd the company which basically allowed the partners to capitalize all the future value that future generations of partners could have earned and give it all to themselves and walk away mm. with all of it. And, um, you know, that's kind of what's happened in our society. And it's less about like the idea of leave, leave the place a better, better than when you found it. Um, you know, now a lot of people are inheriting, like going to inherit a mess mm. at a lot of these places. And so, we need to be thinking about um, that. And so part of my part of the way I see my own mission is, you know, I'm probably not going to run any organizations or something like that. I may not be building an organization at this stage of my life, but I want to create the space and the conditions, you know, in which, uh, you know, I'm Generation X, so that millennials and Generation Z can build something better. They have more opportunities yeah. to sort of rebuild things and regenerate things, you know, because of what I did. And that's kind of a perspective I kind of want to adopt. So that, that, that. cross-generational perspective. Yeah, that was really helpful. And uh, you use that analogy too in the book too about thinking about the cathedrals of the past. Well, I really appreciate your time, Aaron. Um, it's been a blessing. I always ask the question uh, at the end. My top, my podcast is called More to the Story. We'd like to think about the kind of the theological side of that, that there's more to the story than just getting our sins forgiven. But also, I, I like is there more to the story of Aaron Wren? You've been on a lot of podcasts, on a lot of interviews, written a lot, lot of articles. But is there something that people often don't know about you that maybe you could share with us? 
Well, uh, you know, I, I, I love opera, you know, people don't okay. think that's what I say. And, uh, you know, when I lived in New York, uh, you know, I, I lived a 10 minute walk from the Metropolitan Opera House. So I'd go to the opera like once a week. That might be one of the things I miss the most about not living in oh, New York man. anymore because we don't have an opera like that here. Uh, but, uh, wow. you know, that's one, that's one of the things, you know, when I talk about the cultural engagement people, you know, in essence, that's me. Uh, you know, I did grow I, I grew up in the culture war, rural kind of church world. Then as an adult, you know, living in New York and Chicago and, you know, you know, liking things like fine arts and um, that life. Um, yeah. You know, it gives me a perspective on, the, on that as well. But uh, yeah, that's what I, I you know, I, I think opera is great. Yeah, I had the, a, a similar shift. Like I was a music major at Asbury University, and that kind of moved me in this direction of this cult, cultural engagement as a way of doing something with excellence and that type of thing. But okay, curious, what opera? If you had to see, you, you got to see one opera. What would it be? <laughs> I uh, my favorite is actually Don Giovanni. Okay, by, uh, by Mozart. The Masculine. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, you know you can learn a lot about the world. The way yeah. the world works by watching Don Giovanni, which is the basically the canonical retelling of the Don Juan uh, yes. myth, and uh, he does, uh, you know, he. I, I mean, I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say he does get his <laughs> just desserts at the end, but that's a good one that I that I like, and uh, a lot of great music in there. You can't go yeah. wrong with Mozart. Oh man, I love <laughs> it. Well, I wouldn't have predicted that answer, so I appreciate it. <laughs> Again, friends, I just want to remind you, check out this new book, Life in the Negative World. And if you share a link to this podcast on your social media, tag me, Andy Miller III, uh, author page, or on Twitter, Andy Miller III, um, you'll get entered in to be able to win this book for yourself. My thanks to Zondervan for sending sending this book to me, and a, one for myself, and then one that uh, uh, four that I can share with some of my listeners. Aaron, thank you for, for this helpful analysis of what's going on in culture and evangelicalism and this picture of where we can go. It's meant a lot to me. Thanks for having me.